Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Good morning, everyone. Um, before the uh, kids leave and we jump into the message, um, I was asked to share briefly with you a financial update where the church is. So if you'd look on your bulletin, about three-fourths of the way down on that back side, you'll see some, some information. We try about once a month to give a brief update on Sunday morning uh, where things are. So this reflects a year to date. The church's fiscal year and the calendar year are the same. So in January, the budget starts over every year, in other words. Um, last week, we had a really strong offering. Thank you for your generosity. We need uh, three or four, five more weeks like that in a row. Um, every year, January is always behind. We all travel at Christmas and spend more money than we have, and then January comes. So in January, it's very common for the church to, to be below the needs that are present. Typically, by late February, we catch up, and we haven't this year. So if you would prayerfully consider members uh, extra generosity, that would be great. All the ministries of the church exist just based on God's people giving. So do pray about that and consider um, church, how you can help us as a body to get caught up. Kids, hope you have a great time in Gospel Project. As always, thanks to those of you who will be leading. Um, as Todd prayed, we're in uh, Habakkuk, so if you would, thank you, buddy. If you would go ahead and turn with me there, please, that would be great. We'll be in Habakkuk chapter 1, and starting in verse 12 today of Habakkuk chapter 1. George Thomas is one of our newer members, and he's going to come read the text for us today. We have a lot of students in the room. George is a professor across the street. You thought you were getting away from school today, didn't you? The teacher is in the house. Um, come do respect George greatly, and thankful he and his wife Karen are here. So would you read for us, brother? I practice this with my hands, so I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, so Habakkuk uh, 1, 12 through 2, 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, um, he sacrifices to, I read that right. <laughs> For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and looked out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Thank you, brother. If you 
came today hoping for some spiritual cotton candy. This is not the passage for you. But, Lord willing, it will be an encouragement uh, to all of us. Uh, Caribbean cruises are one of the best forms of modern-day torture. Um, in the ancient world, they would fasten you to the stocks or, or whip you with many lashes. Today, they stick you on cruise ships. So, you, let me tell you why. You're stuck on a boat for days and days and days. They tell you when to eat. You have to dress up on vacation. You're crammed in a room where you have to sleep with your knees at your ears. You can use the bathroom, shower, and brush your teeth all at the same time. And then they stick you eating with people you don't know. And so you just stare at each other for a week. And then when you stop, every place you stop at, everyone wants to sell you junk. And you can't get away from all the junk. And then you try to swim in the sea and it throws you back out over and over and over. This is why cruise ships are torture. There's one smart, additional smart person in the room. So um, why would anybody want to do that, let alone pay for it and pay a lot of more money for it? The, the first cruise I ever went on... Um, I was literally terrified that I would get seasick. I get motion sick just looking at things that are rocking or spinning. So I bought these little band things and took all kinds of medicine and a patch back here and I was all set. But what I didn't know uh, is that these large modern cruise ships have something called a gyroscopic stabilizer. Have you heard of that? Maybe I was the only one, the only moron in the room. So for the engineers in the room, just give me a little grace, but in a little bit of research this week, here's what I came to understand. Essentially, what these stabilizers do is the, the captain, when the seas begin to get rocky and there's a storm, can extend the boat underneath the water by pushing out what look like wings. And they cause the minimization of this to happen. So they stabilize the boat. So I was having visions of days and days and days of leaning over the side of the ship. And come to find out, it was nothing. No big deal at all. So these stabilizers are pretty darn cool. They keep you from getting sick on the ship. Stabilizers don't change the storms. They steady the ship in the middle of the storm. You and I need stabilizers for our souls. Because the storms of life come. And when they come, almost always the solution isn't the dissipation of the storm. It's, it's that we need spiritual, gyroscopic stabilizers. Something that extends spiritually out beneath us to keep us from getting rocked to and fro 
by all the stuff of life. Are you with me? Habakkuk today describes for us what was his spiritual stabilization. And so this morning I want us to spend time looking at it together and then also to consider not just the fact that Habakkuk had this this spiritual stabilizer, if you will, but he also reveals a tremendously perplexing problem. And that problem isn't solved in this text, but we need to sit in it together and feel it because we too will face it in some way, shape, or form. So what we'll consider this morning is what was his stabilizer and then what the problem was that he was considering. So just for a quick review, if you haven't been with us, if I could summarize where we've been in about 90 seconds or so. After looking out at the wickedness, not of other nations, but of the Israelites, of the people of Judah, of people who went to church on Sunday, if you will, they went on Saturday, but went to church, and then the rest of the week just played, ran in rampant sin. And as Habakkuk, a godly man, saw this, he was troubled that God seemed to let this go on and on and on and on and on. And so he asked God in the opening verses, how long, God, will you let your people run into sin and you do nothing about it? And why are you doing this? And then in amazement, God responds to him, which we talked about last week. God's response is essentially, I am just and I will act justly, but not in the way you think I might. In fact, I am raising up the Babylonians, a wicked people, who are going to come into Judah, and they will be God's discipline upon the people. So Habakkuk's first complaint got answered. Uh, God isn't idle. He does see what happens. He is going to respond. No sin goes unaddressed. That's a message we need very much to hear today. There is nothing that ever happens that won't be dealt with by God, either at the cross or in our eternal punishment. It's one or the other. We don't ever get away with anything. We might pull a fast one by mom, more likely by dad, but God sees, God hears, God does respond. So that's very clear. And yet Habakkuk is exceedingly troubled by God's response. In fact, if we read the text closely that George read for us, there is a very real sense in which Habakkuk is worse off now that he's gotten this reply from God. But first, let's talk about the good news. Let's look at the spiritual stabilization that Habakkuk used. And essentially we could say this, that The assurance of God's character is what stabilized Habakkuk. The assurance of God's character stabilizes. Brothers and sisters, when the storms of life come, what will spiritually stabilize us is our knowledge of the character of God. How do you get through crises, hardship, difficulty, unanswerable questions? You get through them by knowing God. 
That's what we find Habakkuk doing. We find him rehearsing who God is and what God has done. I can imagine him even out loud praying, saying to himself, God, I know that these things are true about you. So I know I can survive whatever's coming. And that is the only way to get through genuine trial. What happens in those instances is that we recall to mind what the Scriptures say and that God's Spirit uses God's words to extend the amount of turbulation, the hardships and waves crashing against us that we take. In other words, prayer that speaks God's character back to God has a way of rising up in praise to God, but then coming back to us as means to get through trial and hardship. So Christian, when you feel anxious, overwhelmed, worried, confused, what do you do? You don't look inward. You look outward to God's Word. And then you remind yourself, you preach to yourself, if you will, the good news of who God is and what God has done. You don't run crazy with your thoughts. You speak the truth back to yourself. Habakkuk does this masterfully. And so I want to take a couple of minutes to walk through the four aspects of God's character that are listed there in the opening few verses that George read. But before we look specifically at God's character, notice in verse 12, two little letters, the, the possessive pronoun, my. Habakkuk seems to go out of his way to remind himself that God is his. So he says, my God, my Holy One, what great news found in those two little letters. God, the creator, of the, the creator of everything, the ruler of the universe, allows himself to be referred to as my. That is astonishing. Habakkuk, right from the get-go, is saying, God, whatever hardship will come, however confused I am by your response, I'm going to cling to the truth that you are not some distant deity who is disinterested and unpresent. You are here. You are my God. And then he starts walking through reminding himself of who God is. So the first thing he says about God there in verse 12 is that God is everlasting. Now, everlasting in Hebrew means everlasting. It means forever. God is eternal. God has no beginning and he has no end. In fact, God exists without succession of moments. God God is above time. It's hard for us to even get a sense of this. That that God is the same as He's always been and always will be. And so 
in the middle of turbulent times, when the sand underneath us is shifting, there is someone who is not moving, who is, in fact, immovable, who doesn't ever change. His name is God. God was, God is, and God will be. That provides tremendous stabilization. I love the way Psalm 90 verse 2 puts it. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Friends, when everything about our lives seems like it's in upheaval, the only place to turn, the only one to move our gaze to is the everlasting God. Now, the second thing that Habakkuk tells us, reminds us of, is that God is the covenant keeper. This one's a little bit harder to notice. Your Bible likely has the word Lord with a big L and then a slightly smaller O-R-D. Do you see that? We're getting really detailed here. I don't know if your apps do that or not. Don't use your dumb little apps. You need a Bible to hold where you can write stuff and circle stuff. It's not, it's not trendy and cool. Get a real Bible, okay? Use the app when you're having an unplanned conversation with a lost friend over lunch. That's when the app is good. Not in here. and Not at home. Use a real Bible. Uh, that was, none of that was in my notes. But... The, the big L and the slightly smaller O-R-D. Whenever your Bible does that, it's denoting for you that in the Hebrew or Aramaic, the proper name of God is being used. It's called Yahweh. So anytime that Lord is listed that way, it's the covenantal name of God. Now, for some of us, that means absolutely nothing. So real quick, here's what's going on. Way back... In the second book of the Bible, Exodus, God came to a man named Moses, and he said to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell my people, you're coming out, and tell Pharaoh, you don't get them anymore, they're going to the promised land. And Moses, this is in Exodus 3, Moses has all kinds of issues with that, but one of them is, he says, well, I don't even know your name. Who am I supposed to say sent me? And God's response is, I am. Yahweh sent you. And so from that moment on, the covenant name of God, the most significant, most important name by which God is known is I am. Habakkuk calls upon that name of God. Now, for a lot of us, we name our kids by like, uh, that one sounds good. Or, I, I really like this character in the movie named after this person. And then we name our kids after this. Very weird. But in the Bible, names have tremendous significance. They reveal character. And so when God says, I am, part of what he's saying is just like your breath is ever-present. I am always there. 
In Hebrew, if you, if you hear the name, it sounds like this. Yahweh. Yahweh. What does that sound like? Breathing in and breathing out. Now, right now, your brain's exploding. It, it means a lot more than that, but it doesn't mean less than that. God is the I am. He is the ever-present one. He is the only one through which there would be anything that we know. And His promises are therefore always sure. So when, when Habakkuk calls upon God as Yahweh, He is saying, God, what you said to Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and every other person who's been part of your people who have come before me is that you will keep your promises. And so I don't understand how you're going to send Babylon and we're going to survive, but that's what's going to happen. God, I'm going to count on you and trust in you. You see, friends, God had promised that out of Israel, some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would come to know God. And that God would have a people from Him, from him for Himself forever. And Habakkuk is calling all those promises to his own heart. Bless you. He is... Sending out the stabilizers, if you will. And this is no doubt the greatest one. That just like God had been faithful to everybody who came before Habakkuk, He would be faithful to Habakkuk and His people in that day. Tremendous. Third, Habakkuk says that God's holy. We sung about that a lot this morning. Thanks to Brian leading us in a great liturgy laying that out. God, friends, is totally pure in every way. And this becomes enormously important in the book of Habakkuk. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. The most pure, brilliant, set-apart, holy thing you can imagine pales in insignificance compared to God. God is completely perfect. God has never said an evil word, never thought an evil thought, never committed an evil deed. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God's holiness is so pervasive and so powerful that he is literally unable to be tempted to do evil. It's tremendous. Now, it's interesting what Habakkuk does with God's holiness. In other words, as he thinks about the fact that God's holy, it's fascinating how he applies that to his situation. He says, are you not from everlasting? Yahweh, my God, my Holy One, 
we shall not die. Huh? Now that can't mean that no one in Judah would die. And it can't mean that no one would ever die. So what's he saying? It must mean that God would not allow all of them to die. In other words, God had made a promise to Moses, then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God through that line of people would bring a Savior who would redeem a people for Himself. By the way, look around you. As Tad said, there are people here from all different nationalities. We, we are sitting in the fulfillment of the promise that Habakkuk called upon. That's what we get to do every week as we gather. It's brilliant. So Habakkuk is saying, God, you may wipe most of us out, but we will not die. You will preserve at least a remnant of your people for yourself. However bad things get, there will always be a people of God. And finally, Habakkuk calls upon God as, as the rock. Now, not that actor in the movie about Alcatraz. I'm dating myself here a bit. What's that guy's name? The one with the arms the size of my waist? Not that guy. God is the real rock. Deuteronomy 32 puts it this way. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. Habakkuk would have known that scripture. He's likely calling on that very passage. Saying, God, all your ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Friends, God is immovable. He's unchanging. He's solid. Nothing ever gets Him out of sorts. God as our rock means there is one we can cling to who is steady, even in our most unsteady days. God is our rock. Friends, just like Habakkuk needed the character of God to get through the trial of his day, you and I need the character of God to get through the trials of our day. If you are in one today, the great solution isn't the resolution of your problem. The great solution is that God would put out spiritual stabilizers as you remember who He is. And His Spirit would renew you and encourage you and strengthen you and give you the ability to stand on the rock in the middle of the storm. And friend, if you don't have a trial today, the best thing you can do is be walking in and renewing and learning more and more and more about the character of God because the storm will come. Unless you die in some freak accident, so a car hits you, and that's it, 
all of us will face trial. And so what you need to read is not fluffy, light, devotional cotton candy with a sprinkled little verse at the top and then a whole bunch of stuff underneath that has nothing to do with that verse. What you need is the rock-solid character of God. And you'll find that in His Word. Yes, on your app, but don't use your app. As you work day after day after day through page after page after page of the Bible, looking especially for who is God and what has God done, writing those things down, plastering them on your wall if you're into that, tattooing them on your body if you're into that, lettering them if you're into that, texting them, writing them on your hand, whatever it takes to absorb God's character. Our only hope every day, but especially on the days where there is trial, is that set before us would be the feast of God's character for us to eat. That's what Habakkuk did. Habakkuk rehearsed God's character not as means to get what he wanted from God, but simply to survive, simply to not crumble, simply to not be drowned by the waves of hardship he was foreseeing. But Habakkuk found part of God's reply to be deeply disconcerting. You see, God said he was sending Babylon. Sometimes God's word confounds before it comforts. And honestly, I think one of the reasons why we're in it so infrequently is not really that we're all that busy. It's not really that the distractions of our lives are so strong. It's that sometimes when we pick it up and read it, we're faced with things that are extremely difficult. And so it becomes easier just to set it aside. Habakkuk found that he had some assumptions about God. And that assumptions about God and particular actions of God have a way of confounding us. Now make no mistake about it, God said very clearly, I am raising up the Babylonians. I am not sluggish. The sins of Judah are not unnoticed. God will execute justice. God says, I am bringing a rod of discipline and you will not like it. They are called the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. Now this answer perplexed Habakkuk. Now, let me try to tease out the problem. How could a good, holy, sovereign, providential God do that with those people? How could he discipline a wicked people at the hands of a people even more wicked 
Habakkuk essentially says in the rest of the passage, God, I want justice, but not unjustly. God, I'm stunned and horrified that you would punish us, your people, with them, those awful, wicked people. For, for Habakkuk, the discipline of God wasn't the problem. You see, he understood that Judah had broken covenant, that the promise God had made came with stipulations, and Judah hadn't followed the stipulations. And so God was obligated to bring discipline upon his people, and it was for their good. In a very small way, this is like the parent who knows, I must discipline my child or they will turn out insane in the membrane. They will be absolutely out of control. God's the good father. He knows that. So the reality of punishment for sin wasn't the problem. Now, interestingly for us, we, we have even more elementary concerns than Habakkuk did. Our conception today tends to be there is no right or wrong. Truth is whatever anyone determines it to be. The only wrong is telling someone else that they are wrong. And so the idea of a God who would say black and white, right and wrong, and that there would be consequences for actions is preposterous to us. You see, we think mainly in terms of, in categories of fairness and love. Habakkuk was thinking in categories of truth and justice. But so much of that is driven out of our context. So if you lived somewhere in the world today where atrocity was regular, where leadership was wicked, I mean really wicked, you wouldn't be grappling over this pettiness of what's fair. You would want justice. So much of our thinking about truth and love and fairness has to do with living in an affluent society where people are free to determine their actions. Spend a week in North Korea or South Sudan. You'll want things from God that you don't want now. But that's a sermon for another day. Uh, the problem for Habakkuk wasn't that God was going to discipline the problem was who would bring that discipline and the extent of that discipline and God's relationship to it. So troubled was Habakkuk that he accuses God of causing meaningless violence and senseless brutality. When, when Habakkuk thought about Judah's coming judgment, Notice in the text where his mind went. It went to fish. 
Now, not like fish and chips. He didn't catch a little whiff, have a craving. He imagined God's people like fish in the sea who don't know any better than to just keep swimming. And then they're getting caught up in a net and they keep swimming, but they're too dumb to know I'm bigger than the net, I'm not getting out. And so they keep swimming into what's actually catching them. And then they get lifted up into the boat and they're just a pile of nothingness. I mean, they're just fish to have their heads cut off and get eaten. He says, God, you're treating us like that. And then he uses this imagery of a hook. Except in this case, it's not just imagery. Do you know what the Babylonians would, Babylonians would do to people? They would sweep through an area, kill a lot of people, and then take the very best and brightest back to Babylon. And the way they'd get them there is they would take a hook and they'd ram it through their bottom lip. And then they would connect all the prisoners to each other and they would march them back to Babylon. So he's saying, God, you, you, you are sw- you're going to sweep us up in the net? That's merciless. God, you're going to Your own people are going to get the hook of the Babylonians? God, God, I wanted justice, but but not that. That's not just. That's cruel. God, I know all of these things about you, especially that you're holy, but that... That seems evil to me. The Babylonians were relentlessly ruthless. And not only that, verse 16 says that these nets and these hooks, that the Babylonians were finding such surprising success as they swept through cities that they attributed their methods to be the victory given them by the gods. And so they worshipped these nets and these hooks. Can you feel the problem? Does that churn your belly up a bit inside? That God would say, I am raising up the Babylonians, knowing that that's what they did? Does that bother you? It does me. Now, the Babylonians are not our problem. But the underlying issue remains. Let me put it to you in no uncertain terms. Evil exists. Yet God is sovereign and good. But if I just put it like that, I'm chickening out. Because 
the book of Habakkuk says it more strongly than that. The book of Habakkuk says God uses evil to accomplish His ends because He's sovereign and good. God uses evil to accomplish His ends because He's sovereign and good. This is known today as the problem of evil. The fact that there is a God who is all-powerful and completely good and totally pure, sovereign over everything. And yet every single one of us in the room have done evil things and have had evil things done to us. How do these realities coexist? How in the world can that be? Well, if you read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, you will find there is no complete answer to that precise question. And there is not much that drives me bonkers, but that does. And simply chalking that up to mystery is a hard pill for me to swallow. I don't know about you, but it is for me. But we're simply asking the same thing Habakkuk was asking. Friends, the Bible affirms both facts that God is totally pure and sovereign over everything. God is holy and He's all-powerful. So powerful that He can use all things. It's common for people to say today that the power of God means God can do anything. Have you ever heard that? God's so powerful, He can do anything. Technically, that's not true. God can't do everything. That's not what God's omnipotence or His all-powerfulness means. It means that God can do anything He wants to do. God being all-powerful means He can do anything and everything consistent with His character. Now, that's not like a dorky seminary technicality because that means God cannot be the author of evil, that God cannot actively do evil things. And yet the book of Habakkuk says, God says, I am raising up the Babylonians. How do we make sense of this? We make sense of it by saying God is providentially in control of everything. So much so that God can interrupt the evil intentions of evil people to accomplish good in the end. The providence of God means that God turns even evil in the end into agents for his good ends. Now, how exactly is that possible? Well, friends, we could go grab lunch and come back and I could talk you through the major theories of how that can be true, of how God can be good and all-powerful and evil can exist in the world and God can even use evil to His own ends. 
there, there are a bunch of pretty good philosophies or theologies of the problem of evil. But at the end of the day, we don't have to fully comprehend and master all of those questions because that's not what the Bible does with them. Therefore, that must not be what we need. We must rather admit God's God, we're not, both things are true, and He is good. That is what the Scriptures do. Now, if that's hard for you, I get it. When I came face-to-face with passages like Habakkuk 1, as a young man in my 20s, honestly, frankly, really reading through the Bible for the first time as a pastor, and uncovering these kinds of things, in particular, God saying that He predetermined the death of Christ, and yet evil people did it, and it was sin. I went through a stretch of about two years where I thought, I don't know that I want to have anything to do with the Bible anymore. Maybe I need to find some other kind of work. Because that, that is ridiculous. But what I didn't see then was I was taking the posture of God standing over the Bible, telling Him what's right and wrong. And that's not my prerogative. It's not yours either. God's sovereignty and His providence extend over everything. And God is infinitely perfect, everlastingly good, always just. Now, we're essentially out of time, but I've got like five more pages of ways in which to pastorally instruct us on how to apply this hard truth. We're out of time. Let me give you one, and I'll post the rest this week and encourage you to read it on the church's blog. Let me just give you one. And that's quite simply to repent and to submit and to trust. Repent of an arrogance of knowing better than God. Submit to Him, even though we can't make sense of all of this, and trust Him. In the late 1700s, a boy named John Dagg was born in Virginia. A poor family. At the age of 11, Dagg's mother died. As the oldest in a whole bunch of kids, Dagg's dad pulled him out of school, which he loved, and put him to work in a saddle shop because his dad couldn't make enough money to fund the family. Ten years later, at age 21, his dad died. Imagine 21, both parents dead. The night before his dad died, he told him, son, you're the oldest. The family now belongs to you. And so a 21-year-old had responsibility for the family all on his own. The next year, God called him to pastoral ministry. 
At 24, he was preaching in a crowded church house upstairs, and, and the beam in the floor collapsed. And the floor went like this. It didn't fall all the way through to the first floor, but all the people fell onto each other. And so somebody had the bright idea, well, jump out the window. And John forgot he was on the second floor, so he just climbed out. He fell, a story, broke his ankle, and for months and months and months was on crutches and ended up unable to walk. At 29, Dag's wife gave birth to their fourth child. And then three weeks later, she died. John said of that moment, this was the severest blow that had ever been received. But the gracious being who saw it needful to inflict it sustained me under it. At 30, his eyesight, which had slowly been fading, vanished completely. Can't walk, wife dead, four children, and now blind. He pastored a prominent Baptist church in Philadelphia for a while. Couldn't walk, couldn't see. But at 40, he had to resign because he lost his voice. So think pre-amplification. If you can't speak loudly... You can't do what I do. So 40, can't speak. I, I know this. I, I'm imagining, I'm 40. Imagining this happening to me. He thought he was done. But in God's grace, he took on a job leading a school, and he had health problems the rest of his life. I mean, horrible health problems. But in retirement, he wrote two books. Now, these are riveting titles, The Manual of Theology and The Manual of Church Order. But these were the first theological significant systematic works done by any Baptist in America. And guess how he ended up with them? Dad couldn't see anything, so he very softly dictated them to his second wife. She wrote them out. And after she died, so he, he buried his second wife, his eldest daughter sat with him for hours and hours and hours as this blind, crippled man articulated what for generations was the standard work guiding pastors. How did John think about all of that stuff in his life? Here's what he says in the book. And then I'm done. We must not only feel the hand of God in our affliction, but we must realize that it has been laid upon us with design. 
We have to do not so much with our Father's hand as with our Father's heart. There's a lot of weak Christianity today as directly tied to believing that from God we can get cars and spouses and children and nice jobs, but nothing else. Friends, Dag learned who God is through suffering. No suffering, we would not have had these. Repent, submit, trust. Let's pray. Father, there's much left to be said. But we have said enough. We pray that you would forgive us. And we pray that those in the room who don't yet know you would come to find that the ultimate answer to evil is in the cross of Christ, where Christ took on the most evil thing that's ever happened. Father, help us to guide each other in your word and to receive comfort from your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.